What do you do when what you experience in your life seems so different than what you read about in Scripture? What do you think or believe when it feels like God has given up on you? Let's not fool ourselves. Just because we're in church on a Sunday morning, just because we're church members, just because we, we're, we're looking good on the outside does not mean that we have no doubts. I think we all inwardly face those questions, those doubts that, that, that we experience, and, and, and some of us are just really good at hiding those doubts and those questions. All Christians, and that includes pastors and elders and, and Bible study leaders, uh, all of us, all of us have moments where we wonder what in the world is going on. Maybe you've looked at your life. You've been faithful. You, you've served the Lord for many years and you get the bad news from the doctor. Where is God? What is God doing in this Maybe you've discipled your children well, and you've built into them an understanding of God's word, an understanding of the gospel, and yet they turn away. You wonder, why would this happen? Maybe it brings you to a place of doubting God and his faithfulness. Everyone I know, every single person I know, if I spend enough time with them, will tell me, yes, I have doubts. I have questions about what God is doing and how God does it. Yes, I wonder. My hope this morning, my hope is that as you see Genesis 15, in light of the entirety of the book of Genesis, that you see that God has made promises and that when God makes a promise, he keeps them. That there is no going back on the covenant that God has made. And that when you see in scripture these promises that God has made, he hasn't changed. The truth of the matter is, though, that you and I may never see some of those. And we'll get to that later as we dig into this scripture because I, I think it, it is so applicable. Yes, we don't slaughter animals. Yes, we don't cut those animals in half. Yes, there's no burning torch floating through those. There's a reason for that happening here. But this passage here is about God's covenant that finds its fulfillment in Christ. And we are the beneficiaries of this. We can have this forgiveness, the greatest promise that God has made when we trust in Christ. So let me give you a, a bit of a recap of what's been happening up to this point. In Genesis 14, we saw a, a pretty dramatic series of events. Abram and his people settled about 30 miles as the crow flies away from Sodom. Uh, so Lot settled here. Abraham or Abram and his people went here. Uh, Lot settled originally outside of Sodom, but then somehow found his way inside the city. Sodom, as we'll see in a couple weeks, if you don't know, it was not a very good place. Um, debauchery is probably the best way I could describe what happens there. But in Genesis 14, we saw that the kings of Sodom had been paying tribute for 12 years to foreign kings. Uh, hundreds of miles away, they had been giving money regularly to these kings as protection money. And for 12 years they paid this, but then they decided in year 13 they were paying no more. 
And so the four kings sent their armies uh, on a journey to destroy these kings of Sodom, to take all their lands, to take what they could. And each town fell to the invading armies. And to the people, all hope was lost. But then one of the townspeople made his way out and he ran the, the, the long distance to Abram. And so Abram thought for a while and he gathered up 318 of his men and he went out after these invaders. And he defeated them. And he returned as conquerors. And then Abram had an interaction with Melchizedek, a, a strange situation that he wasn't mentioned any time before this. But Melchizedek plays a big role in the story of Christ. Here's what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham anointed a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Melchizedek was a foreshadowing of Christ. Very early on in God's story, uh, the scripture states that Melchizedek was a type of Christ, a, a foreshadowing of what would come in the Messiah. Kind of unfolding as the Bible goes, it's, it's telling us, look to Jesus, look for Jesus, look for Jesus, over and over and over in Scripture. To the point, by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, you're just waiting. We know what we're looking for. He's right here. And this is what's happened. God's plan was unfolding. And we've also seen something else through the first 14 chapters. We've seen something that I, I think is undeniable, that only a sovereign God could have orchestrated all of these things. Only a God who created and sustains the entire universe could orchestrate what's happened here in Genesis so far. And I believe something that may strike you as strange to hear, not from a pastor, because we're, we're supposed to say these things, but first from a fellow brother in Christ. I believe that God is in control of all things that happen. Now as your mind's racing, you're thinking, well, this bad thing has happened to me, this bad thing, and you start listing all of those bad things that have happened in your life, and you say, wait a minute, God is not the author of sin. God has not sinning. He's not causing us to sin. So what happens when these bad things happen? And the truth of the matter is, as I tell people when they uh, go through tragedy, I say that's not the right time to get your understanding of God's sovereignty correct. It's too late then. When those bad things are happening in our lives, no matter what they are, could God have stopped it? And if you say no, then you worship an impotent God. God could have stopped those things. So why did they happen? Either God did them or he allowed them to happen. God is in control. Now, the, the hard part is, is that we may never understand why that happens. We never, may never see why God has allowed these horrible things to happen. But truth be told, I'd have a hard time worshiping a God that didn't have complete control. I may never understand why these bad things happened, but the sovereignty of God tells me that God did not somehow miss it and that he somehow may have a purpose for what's happening. And this is a concept that we see happening. The life of Abraham is not a life where it's full of riches and joy. The life that Abraham has led so far is ups and downs over and over again. And 
might say, well, wouldn't it be easier for God just to bless Abram and, and just let him have all of the things that he promised? Would that? No. It's not how God operates. We appreciate God's grace so much more when we are at the bottom, right? When we have no place to turn, we see it with celebrities, right? When they lose all of their money, when everyone around them abandons them, what happens? They come to Jesus. It's not a wonder. We appreciate God's grace so much more when we experience those trials and losses in life. And Abram certainly experienced those things. Now we've reached chapter 15. And we're going to dig deeper in the life of Abram and, and how God's covenant with him unfolds. And in verses 1 through 6, we see Abram and his faith. The picture of what's happening is important. Abram had just returned from a victorious battle. He defeated the armies of these kings, and he's welcome as a hero. And so what doesn't say in Scripture, but we can assume that after this victory and after the celebration, he heads home. Bible doesn't give us a timeline on what's happening here, uh, but, but I think what's happened is he may have come home and he took a day or two to let the adrenaline go out of his body. And then he had to get back to work. He, he had farms and, and people to manage and he had cattle that he had to take care of. He's welcomed as a hero and then he's back to normal life. That's a letdown, isn't it? If you know guys who've been in military in the military but have actually been shot at or have been in in situations where bullets were flying uh, or bombs going off it's not easy for those men and women to come back to normal civilian life it's not easy to return to this when you're used to month after month after month of hearing bombs and bullets going off it's not normal now, I've never been in that situation, and so I don't mean to minimize that, but the, the closest letdown that I have is being a sports fan. Now, hear me out. I'm a Duke fan, and I know some of you aren't, but, but I'm a Duke basketball fan, and in 2010, Duke won the national championship. They had a good team all season. There were questions, but as the tournament went on, they won the first game, they won the second. The third and then the fourth, they, they go to the final four and it's exciting, but, but once you get to that point, you want to win. You don't want to go to the final four and lose. You don't want to be the, the third or fourth best team. You want your team to be the best. And I vividly remember where I stood, and if you remember 2010, there was a, a, a play at the end. It was a low-scoring game, and, and Duke had the ball, and they got fouled, and, and he made the first free throw to give them a two-point lead, and he intentionally missed the second one, and you're wondering why in the world. Because if Butler, their opponent, got the ball back, they could shoot a three and make it and win the game. Not just tie, but win. So the center for Duke missed the free throw. Guy for Butler grabbed the rebound, took a couple dribbles. And it felt like years, that ball in the air. I mean, it was like watching it in slow motion. And I, my thoughts were, we're, we're going to lose this game. What a way to lose. And it missed by an inch. And Duke is cheering, and I'm running around the house and screaming, and my wife is telling me to be quiet, and, 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 and so I'm excited. And about five minutes later, it's like, okay, well, next season. I'm like, man, Duke signed the number one recruit in the country. He's coming in to play point guard next year. We're going to win it again. And I said, wait, how foolish is that? You're just, your team just won a championship, and now you're worried about next year within minutes. There's a letdown. 
How could I deal with that situation? Well, the truth of the matter is, Abram probably went through something far greater than that letdown. He comes back from battle, and now he's forced to, to see the reality of life. But that doesn't last very long. He comes back after battle and he realizes the promises that God has made to me have still not come to pass. God's promised that there will be many that will come from me. Sarai, my wife, is still barren. She can't have children. We're old. How is this going to happen? Do you see this up and down that he's facing? There, there is no time to relax because he's faced immediately with what many of us would call our, some kind of inadequacy, right? That, that we would say that God has promised us something and yet we don't have it, so what am I doing wrong? Why can't I have what God has promised to me? This victory that he had was sweet, but it didn't protect him from the kings who would also come for his head. And it didn't get him closer. This victory did not get him closer to having his child. What would you do? Put yourself in Abram's situation. What is it that you would do in response to, to what Abram has just experienced? I can, I can tell you what I would do. I'd demand answers. God, I trust you. I do. I promise. I really do. But can I have something concrete right now? Could you please just speak to me? I can think of many, many times where I just wanted some kind of assurance, some vision of what would happen. I just, I just want to know. I can wait years. I can wait 10, 20 years. I can do that. I just want to know that it's going to happen. Abraham had faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness. But the truth is, Abram was not Jesus. His righteousness, taken alone and by themselves, just like our righteousness, filthy rags. Not good enough. So we know that there was no difference between Abram and us. We have a problem, and I do too, when we read the scripture and we look at even historical situations, we see these men and women as superheroes. We, we see them without flaws or without faults, but the more you read scripture, the more you see that they are exactly like us. Doubts and questions and flaws and, and sin. And so God did not save Abram because Abram was good enough. Because Abram was not good enough. And he must have had some sleepless nights. Just like we would. God, give me some answers, please. And God did. Look at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. God speaks to Abram. After his victory and then his encounter with Melchizedek, Abram heard nothing. So he goes back to life. Could have been a few hours, it could have been a few months, we don't know, but no matter what, God shows himself to Abram. God is no longer silent. You can imagine the hope that he would have felt at this point. He, he's public enemy number one for these kings. They're after him. And God says this, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. I'm your protector. 
I will save you. God is reminding Abram what he reminds us, that we are to find our satisfaction not in a victory in battle, not in wealth, but only in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When we find our strength and satisfaction in God, we are glorifying God. So God speaks in verse 1, and in verses 2 and 3, we see Abram's response. He says, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childish, a childless, excuse me, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. This is the first recorded words of Abram to God in Scripture. He may have spoken to him before, but it's not recorded, so we know that there's a, a strong emphasis here on what he's saying. Abram was doing all that he could to believe the promises that God has made to him. Now, I've had conversations with many people over the years where they, they come to me and, and they'll sit across my desk and they'll say, Ryan, help me to understand why you're doing this. Help me to understand why you have said this or why you are, are, are leading in this way or why you believe this. In, in, in other words, it's a respectful way to say I know what you've done, but I'm losing hope in what you're doing now. Help me to see this. Help me to get the big picture. Eliezer is not Abram's son. He's one of Abram's servants. If Abram didn't have a son, all of his, his, his property, his land, his cattle, his people, they would all go to one of the servants. And as much as we love other people's kids, they're still not our kids. Many of you have served for years in children's ministry, and you love those kids. You sacrifice for those kids. I'm helping out on a baseball team now and a soccer team. I love being around those kids, but they're not mine. They're not mine. Yes, if, if I didn't have any children, I'd love for those kids in my life to, to get whatever it is that I have. But they're not mine. I want my children to have what I have, to be able to pass down to them, to, to make their life a little bit better than mine. Abram wanted an heir, and God promised it to him, and now Abram is wanting some answers. He's got some questions. And God promised Abram descendants twice, uh, in chapter 12 and once in chapter 13. God has not gone back on his word. Read these with me. 12 verse 2. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Chapter 12, verse 7. To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Chapter 13, verses 14 and 16, through 16. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Now hear what God says in verses 4 and 5 of our text. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, Eliezer. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, kind of like the whole sand discussion, number the grains of sand, and he says this. He says, look toward the heaven, number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. God personalized this promise for Abram. He knew what the promise was, but now it's clear that he would have a son. 
See, understand this, God brought Abram out because Abram was a moon worshiper. He came from the the clans that worshiped the moon, and now God says, look up there, see all those stars, your descendants will be more than those. So what is the only right response for someone to have when when they're presented with the glory of God? What should anyone do when they're confronted with God's greatness? Look at verse six. And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram placed his trust in what God would do for him rather than what Abram could do for God. Is this not the way that we respond to Christ when we're presented with the gospel? We say this to God, I can't do this for myself, so now I rest in the promise that everyone who repents and believes in Christ will be forgiven and will have eternal life. How did Abram come to faith? The same way Peter came to the truth. Look at Matthew 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he, Jesus, said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Listen, Abram was not saved by his works. Neither are you. Your own goodness, filthy rags. Abram was not saved by works. None of us are. And and verse 6 is probably the most influential verse to understanding all of the New Testament. It's the backbone of Romans 4, Galatians 3, James chapter 2. Salvation, forgiveness of sin, and a right relationship with God cannot come from anything we are or anything that we do. God gives us the faith to believe in spite of who we are. It's the gift of God so that no one may boast. I have no goodness. All I have is Christ. But Abram has doubts. Knowing all of this, he still has doubts. Look at verses 7 and 8. God says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he, Abram, said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He still trusts that God will make this work. But even when someone makes a promise, we're always questioning how. I can make you promises all day long, and and my word may be true to you, and and you may believe every word that I say, but you're still wondering, how in the world is he going to get this done? It's natural. He wants to know. You, You and I have had these prayers too. How many times have you said something like this, God, just show me what you want me to do. God, just show me. I want to know. We want a voice from heaven telling us what to do, but the truth of the matter is that we have something that Abram didn't. Three things, really. We have God's completed word. Abram did not. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Abram did not. And we have the church. Abram did not. 
God has given us these things to speak truth into our lives so that we can see exactly what God expects of us and what God wants of us. And all three are given for our benefit. Lesson, sidebar, when you begin to have doubts, those are your three sources. You go to God's spirit. You read his word and you talk to his people. Now notice here, though, in these verses 7 and 8, the interaction between Abram and God. Now think about it. Is God angry with Abram's questions? Now he makes a few statements, Abram does, in the first few verses of this chapter that's kind of rude, inching towards blasphemy. But God does not rain fire down on him. Instead, God responds with gentle assurance. Now before we get into the preparation for the covenant, I want to remind you that there is a difference between asking God questions and questioning God. There's a a big difference. One is good and healthy, the other is not. An example of what uh, is happening is what Abram is doing here. He was asking God from his heart how these promises would happen. Now you may see that God has promised certain people certain things, but you've only experienced heartache. You may hear Jesus say that he will give you rest and all your entire life is nothing but chaos. You've seen Jesus say that he has overcome the world, but the world is killing you right now, figuratively or literally. There is a difference between saying, God, will you help me to see the purpose in this, and God, how dare you let this happen to me? Do you see the difference? The statements from Abram are the same thoughts that we all have. It's it's helpful for me to recognize the humanity of Abram for this very reason. He was a man with doubts and with questions. Let's be honest here. God made him promises that are really, really difficult to see happening. We have people in our church that are older. Put yourself in Abram's position. You're 80 years old, and and you have no child, and and your wife is barren. How is this going to happen? I mean, just from a medical perspective, how in the world is this going to happen, right? God made promises that were difficult. Let's see what God says next. Look at verses 9 through 11. God said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. This may be one of the strangest things that we've seen so far in Genesis. Again, every week that I'm preaching, I'm like, man, I want to go into the film room of heaven and watch what this looked like. I want to see the, the, how this happened. Like, this is a sight to behold. It's not for the gruesomeness, just because it's strange. We would never do this. What people in Abram's day would do when there was a promise, though, is something similar to this. We shake hands, we sign a contract. Those in Abram's culture would kill a donkey, split it into two pieces, separate the pieces so the two parties could walk between the carcasses. That's how they sealed deals. Maybe in light of COVID-19, maybe that's the way we should go with no more handshaking, but I don't even know where to get a donkey. The idea was that breaking the covenant, that if two people walked together between the, the carcass of this donkey, and if anybody broke that, they're saying, I'm as good as dead. I'm as good as this donkey is. 
Jeremiah 34 has something similar to this tradition. It was to show that anyone who broke a covenant was to, be, uh, or to, was to die for their deceit. Now keep that in mind because we'll come back to that idea in a minute with God. And here in Genesis 15, Abram was told to get five animals. Each of these animals would be accepted later on in the Mosaic Covenant, but this wasn't a sacrifice. But it was a picture of the system that's to come. The three larger animals, cut in half, separated. The birds were not, probably because they were smaller. And you cut a bird in half, you may not have anything left. Then birds of prey came swooping down on the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now you're like, why in the world is that even in here? Parts of scripture that you're just wondering why. This is just crazy. But if you're familiar with the story of Abram, this will connect with you because it's a foreshadowing of the nations that would one day attack the descendants of Abram. And this is why I say having a quiet time where you read the Bible for five minutes a day is awesome. But you're missing out if you don't spend lots and lots of time diving in deep to the word, seeing how different books of the Bible, different genres work together to tell this one big picture of what's happening in God's story. And you, you miss the interconnectedness of what scripture has for us. And this is one of them. This was a, a foreshadowing of what would come for Abram's descendants. Now, this was all happening during the day, so it was bright. People could see it. Verse 12, though, says that Abraham or Abram fell into a deep sleep. Look at this verse. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. You remember Exodus 19? Mount Sinai was covered in the darkness. Do you remember Matthew 27 when Jesus hung on the cross? What happened for three hours? Great darkness. Thousands of years before Christ, a darkness fell upon Abram. And a darkness would fall over the entire earth when the last sacrifice hung on the cross. God's promise to Abram, the land, would later be fulfilled by a greater promise, eternal life through faith in Christ. Do you see how they're connecting here? There's no accident. So verses 12 through 16 give details of the covenant. And God says in verses 13 and 14 that Abram's descendants would then be enslaved for 400 years in a land that isn't theirs. In other words, they're going to be slaves. The same word to describe what Abram's descendants would endure is, is the word that we translate as afflicted. It's used to describe what happened to the Israelites when they were enslaved in Egypt in the book of Exodus. Abram heard God's promises to him, special promises, that he would have a son and his offspring would be more numerous than the stars in the sky. He had just heard that God say that, and now God is saying that his descendants will be homeless and enslaved for 400 years. Up and down, up and down. The emotional roller coaster keeps going on for Abram. Here's good news. Can't figure out what to make of it. And then he hears that his promised descendants would be slaves. And then in verse 15, Abram is told that he would not possess the land himself. Look at this verse. God says, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. He's never going to experience that land. But notice what it says. It says that he will die in peace. In the midst of what was a shock to Abram, God still provides him great comfort to say that you will be rested. The Amorites, 
People listed in verse 16 were still living in Canaan. Uh, The book of Joshua records how uh, God brought the Israelites' victory against the Amorites. This wasn't intended to, to be depressing for Abram, but rather to show that God has been patient with sinners. Some of us will say the same question I had earlier. Well, if the Amorites are so evil, why didn't God just wipe them out? Truth is, if God dealt with us the same way, we all would have been wiped out a long time ago before we took our first breath. The Amorites were not good people, and God showed long-suffering toward them as God shows long-suffering towards us. And Abram's life had been one difficulty after another, and this was no different. God's promise was going to come after Abram died, and the Amorites would continue to live in their sin for a long, long time. The truth is that God is long-suffering, and we often don't see the fruit of our faithfulness, though. Abram was not going to see the fruit of his faithfulness. I think of William Carey, the the great Baptist missionary from England who who left his homeland to go to India in the 1800s, the early 1800s. Not a a place that was teeming with Christians by any means. Then he goes to establish a mission there, and it took him seven years before he had one convert to the faith. Seven years His family life was a mess because of the the challenge to move, especially in that day. It'd be a challenge today to do that, but especially then to move from England all the way to India, establish something and try to learn the language, learn the culture, try to minister to people there and try to point them away from their folk religions or Hinduism or Buddhism and point them to Christ. It's a difficult task. Spent years sharing the gospel His faithfulness uh, was was not showing much fruit. And even after 41 years of ministry in India, he only saw 700 converts. Now we say 700 is a lot, but that's 41 years. That's 17 a year. That's not that many. But his legacy isn't in the relatively small number of converts. He started a college in 1818 that still exists today. Currently there are more than 2,000 students in India, Indian students who are going to that college. The training of believers in India and and spreading of the gospel and raising up believers through discipleship that he began in the early 1800s still lives today. He didn't see the fruit of that. And even though Abram would not experience the fulfillment of all the promises that God had made to him, his descendants would. Now look at verses 17 through 21. We see the covenant now being made. Look at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Another description of what's happening is strange. It's weird. It's these carcasses that have been split into two, and then this flaming torch moves through in between. Follow with me here. Do you remember the burning bush? God speaking through the burning bush. What about when Israel had the clouds by day and fire by night? That was a manifestation of God, and this is too. This is God moving in that torch. So it moved between the pieces of animal. And what I've been seeing throughout Genesis is there's so much more that I want to mine the riches of this book of Genesis to see so much richness here. And what I never noticed, never once reading through this, think about this. God never asked Abram one time to participate in this. Not once. It's not Abram walking beside or behind or in front of this torch. It is the torch moving between the carcasses. 
The covenant was that God was making. The covenant was from God and God alone. God was making promises to Abram because Abram couldn't fulfill his side of the covenant even if he tried his hardest. This is about God's faithfulness. The work that Christ has done in us, likewise, is his, not ours. If our salvation were left on what we could do or what we could earn, we'd all be doomed. There is nothing that we can do to earn God's favor by ourselves. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Do you know what God is doing in this act? He is the only one making the covenant. Do you remember what I said earlier, that if you break a covenant, you deserve to die? He's the only one making the covenant, so he is calling for his own death should the covenant be fulfilled. But we know that God cannot die. Therefore, God's promises will be fulfilled. This is what the act of him moving between these animals is showing. Now notice what happens next. Flaming torch is moving between the animals. And then God speaks. He says, on, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now it could be a major letdown when Abram doesn't get to see this. He gets to see this torch happening, and, and he's probably jaw on the floor. But he doesn't get to see the fulfillment of these promises. Looking through the history of the church or the history of Israel, you can see that this promise was sort of fulfilled during David's reign, but then during Solomon's reign, it was ended. Not the, not the covenant, but the, the fulfillment of this. It was very brief. But think about what this means to you, not some Israelite from thousands of years ago. Think about what it means for us today. Because the Bible is, is just as applicable today as it was to them back then. And so we have to think about this, even though we're thousands of years and thousands of miles separating us from Genesis chapter 15. How could this be relevant to us? Well, look at Galatians 3.29. If you are Christ's, then you are Abram's offspring, Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Christian, if you are a believer, the same land promise that was given to Abram is promised to you. You are part of Abram's lineage. You belong to the same God and the same Messiah that Abram did. And look at what Paul writes in Romans 5. Notice how similar it is to Galatians 3. He's reminding Christians that since they belong to Christ, they have been given an inheritance that is eternal life. Listen to Paul's words. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Listen, I can't stress this enough. The promises that God gives to Abram find their fulfillment in Christ. This is our inheritance. It's the same inheritance. 
And listen to this. No matter what you believe about the land of Israel today, no matter what you believe about the current political state of Israel, or the land on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean, a deed to a physical land is not the main idea of this passage or the entire scripture. The promise that we look forward to is not something that you can buy or sell. We await the new Jerusalem, the city that has, has foundations whose designer and builder is God. This entire book, the entire Bible, but specifically Genesis, is not pointing us to a specific piece of land, property that can be traded and bought and sold. It's pointing us to the heavenly kingdom, the new Jerusalem, the new city, the one where Jesus will reign king forever and ever. It's pointing us to eternity. That's the promise that Abram is given, and that's the promise that we have, the same promise. Look to Christ. Keep your eyes focused on that future. Would you pray with me? Father, we